Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guests this week are Adam Naiman, friend of the show, and Haley Melodic, two film critics who've been staunch defenders of showgirls for a pretty long time. Adam literally wrote the book on Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus's superheated melodrama, It Doesn't Suck, which was published in 2014. And when it came out, Haley interviewed him in the all, folding his book into a larger argument for the film's specific merits and strengths. Both Haley and Adam appeared in Jeffrey McHale's 2019 documentary, You Don't Know Me, about the release and reclamation of Verhoeven's film. So, of course, when they were pitched to me as guests, there was really only one picture we could talk about. This is someone else's movie. I guess at this point, the film's status is uh, indisputable as a cultural icon. So maybe we start there. Um, Sure. Why Showgirls? Uh, I mean, when you talk about the indisputable status part, I'll just say something that I think I put in the forward to the second edition of the book, which was in showing the movie. And like, I haven't showed the movie as much as somebody like Peaches Christ has showed the movie or David Schmader. Like I'm a cut below them because they had a head start and I don't really, um, you know, right. uh, you know, run, run an underground screening series. But I have showed the movie with audiences at least seven times, right? Like once with Verhoeven, a bunch of times just with me, TIFF, different places. And everyone always either asks the same question in the Q&A or they come up to me after. They're like, why did anyone think this was bad? <laughs> like, like, and they're not being sarcastic. Like that's something that a friend might say or, or you have a real conversation with a colleague, like talking about why people thought it was bad and now good. But for a lot of people seeing it for the first time, or who are watching it in any kind of curated context, like at a Cinematheque or as part of a festival, they're all just like, this is quite obviously good. And that's kind of wild when you proceed from the original premise that this is the worst thing ever. Not even that you have to convince anybody anymore, or that the the percentage of the population you have to convince is pretty reduced. Um, yeah, I also am stuck on the the qualifier of an indisputable status because I do think that it's the fact that it is not indisputable that brings people back that it is something that has this argumentative quality um and yeah like when Adam tells these stories about people who come up to him and say oh this is quite obviously good that's something that I really relate to because I you know I missed the wave of the theatrical release where there was this sort of critical mass that surrounded the movie that Adam and I had talked about this um you know back when we talked about showgirls just as friends but also in like professional circles um where you know, there was this sensibility that the criticism needed to act as a corrective, that something had gone wrong with this movie. And now the critics had to pull back and let, you know, let the filmmakers, let the actors, let the people who enjoyed it know that they had crossed some sort of line and it wasn't going to be tolerated. Um, And something that I go back to frequently when I think about Adam's writing on this specifically is the idea that this is a movie that has achieved a real cultural reckoning on that critical recognition um, without changing the movie at all like the people are what have changed the movie has stayed constant Um, and so I do I do wonder if it's the type of thing where you know because it started off with something that was attractive and now has switched horses um, you know is it gonna stick is it going to be the type of thing where everyone was like oh we rescued this movie from being considered just bad or just good and we gave it a little bit more nuance or complexity or you know, 10 years from now, are we going to be back here kind of eating our words and like, oh no, actually, we're so sorry. We were wrong. This is, this has been bad the whole time. Um, but essentially for me, I do. And this is another thing that, uh, like I always point to Adam's thinking on this, the question of whether or not a movie is bad or good is really the least interesting part of reading criticism on a film, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I... all thinking that gets you there that I think showgirls, functions as a really perfect example of. Yeah, the the binary, the yes, no, thumbs up, thumbs down, um, it doesn't help uh, mm-hmm. because it just creates, I mean, it creates tribalism. It allows people to get behind a thing they really love or hate a thing they really hate. But Showgirls is one of those things. I mean, I was there in 95. I, I, I went, it wasn't screened for critics. So I actually went to see the first Friday night show at the Hollywood Theater of Blessed Memory. 
And that room did not like that movie. I, I didn't think it was quite as atrocious as some because I could see what it wanted to do, but I didn't, I, I didn't, and I still don't know necessarily that it accomplishes what it thinks it's doing. But I also, something that Adam has always said, even back when, when did we first talk about it, 2002, 2003, something like that, has stuck with me, which is there is absolutely no reason to believe based on all of his other work that Paul Verhoeven made a mistake. Like he made the movie he wanted to make. He did this on purpose and it is a clear representation of intent. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, what, what Haley was saying, you know, 10 years from now, will people look back and say, we kind of made a mistake again. That's a really interesting question because I think it benefits hugely from, um, a relative diversity of critical viewpoints on it, which is to say, if you look back at the initial wave of people who reviewed it, this is not implicative of you, but it's of our profession. Like it was an awful lot of kind of straight white male critics oh, yeah. like me. So it, to some extent, my point is being undermined even as I make it, <laughs> but it was really a kind of a monolithic critical establishment that received it. And writing in a moment, too, where, like, personal insult and physical insult of female actresses could be, like, in the lead of your reviews, you know? Like, that's one thing that Jeff's movie does really well, is he reiterates just the way people like Gene Siskel, like, talked about her on Berkeley on TV, where it's, like, conflating bad acting with, like, bad personality and lack of sex appeal and whatever else. And I think that there's a reaction against that as film criticism has somewhat diversified or as film criticism has become hybridized more online with cultural criticism and reading movies through other parts of culture and through other parts of identity, where all of a sudden the appeal that showgirls had from the beginning, which was very much to a queer audience that could read it to some extent, which was very much to uh, even academics who, who read it in terms of its racial politics, however incoherent or kind of troubling those politics might be, all of a sudden the field of why the movie is interesting just kind of opened up. You know, there are so few reviews of the movie in 1995 by women, not none, but, you know, very few. And I'm not saying that it's, again, monolithically a movie that necessarily female critics would like, but the most interesting writing on it in that first wave of reclamation in the late 90s or the 2000s was by female academics who were like, yeah, problematic text, incoherent object, but incredibly interesting and more cards on the table about a lot of things than more decorous or, you know, circumspect American movies are and then that's simultaneous to a guy like Jacques Rivette who's like the ultimate auteur he's the actual you know writer of auteurism and an auteur himself kind of being like no nah, the movie's good on purpose <laughs> which is something that Haley and I have not I wouldn't say argued about in like a yes no way but it's it's tricky because even Paul himself has sort of been like well, I meant a lot of what's good about it but I didn't mean her performance to be that way so it's not absolute yeah, there's so much here. You know, every time I am lucky enough to be asked my opinions on this, I feel like I get overwhelmed by everything I want to say. And specifically as it relates to the type of people who were responding to the film or considered themselves the intended audience for the film and how that kind of runs parallel to the credits of it. Um, I remember, you know, when I was researching the essay that I wrote about Adam's movie, I remember reading one of the, maybe it was like an essay or a biography about Paul Verhoeven. Um, and there was an anecdote about how as a kid, he would just always steal the ball from other kids on the playground and kick it over the fence, right? Is that in your book, Adam? Do you include No, you, you brought it to me and it's in your yeah. hair piece and it's a great yeah. anecdote. Yes, because like there's something about that where it's like, wow, some people are just always themselves, you know, they're really cool <laughs> that person. And that's a quality that I think Showgirls has very much so, um, but all of his movies have. Like his movies, whether or not they're bad or good, I do think of them as very mean, and I think of them as quite cruel. And, um, you know, something when I got involved with this film, you know, I'll speak very candidly, um, is that I was approached very specifically as a feminist film critic to speak about, you know, how my maybe political background or personal experience influenced my reading of the film. Um, and I think that's an extremely worthy question to ask of everybody because 
like in the way that I've been raised as a certain type of person, socialized to have a certain type of experience when I'm watching a film made by a certain type of director, like all of those things contribute to my reading um, in a way that's going to be very different from Adam's, but Adam brings his own reading into the film. Um, so yeah, like when I think about what it means to experience it the way I did, so like, you know, I saw it when, um, you know, there was a drinking game attached to the reissue of the DVD. Right, I remember um, yeah, so like my sister and my boyfriend at the time, we had like a wonderful evening. We're like, we're gonna get drunk and watch this famous cult classic. And then of course we get to the rape scene. And I was like, oh, you know, um, again, it's not like the type of thing where I necessarily thought I needed some sort of warning, but it made me remember. I was like, oh, only one type of person has told me that this is a movie that I'm really gonna enjoy. You know, like when I was reading about who considered it to be you know, so uh, so part of a canon or a cult classic or once I watch it and you have a great time. Um, that's where I really experienced, I think, Paul Verhoeven's tendency to take a ball out of your hands and kick it out of the fence, where it's just like, I'd like to hurt your feelings now. I'd like to, you know, like, you know, not just challenge you, but punish you for expecting this to be something that's going to be entirely enjoyable or like, you know, affirming in some way. Um, and in the years since I first wrote that essay, since I read Adam's book, um, since I participated in the documentary even, which wasn't that long ago, but it was several years. Yeah, my opinion has changed. Yeah, it was like, I don't think I feel the same way that I do. It's very funny to like listen to our opinions in the film and be like, oh, who, who was the Haley that said that? So that's why I am sort of like, yeah, let's, let's make this a recurring thing. Let's check back in in three years and five years and 10 years and I'll continue to get smarter, I hope. I mean, how often, and Norm, you can weigh in on this because it's your job. I mean, we Norm and I know each other because, you know, Norm's a great guy and we're friends, we're critics, we're colleagues. Sure. Go, go to screenings for years and you would probably be the first to agree. You are often not obligate, a movie does not often obligate you to have an opinion. Your job does. Right, well, you are being paid is like I. Okay, I thought this of that, yeah. but there aren't that many movies that kind of push you into corner and say you got to react to this. And that's the thing about Showgirls, both pro and con, and why I think it was such a cultural flashpoint all at once, and then gradually in the other direction, having achieved I think critical mass of being redeemed. But like I can't like bang my gavel and say it's redeemed, but it's pretty close. It's closer than one might have ever thought. It's because it's not like a neutral viewing experience. Yeah, and it demands and, that you pick a side by the, by well, the time the credits roll, I think. It demands a lot. I mean, in my book, I sort of write about Nomi's introduction. And I mean, God, we could go down the rabbit hole of time about Berkeley's acting, and maybe we will, or maybe I'm bored of that, or Haley's bored of that, or whatever. But you're like 30 seconds into this movie, you're like, I gotta. I'm with this character. I'm. 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 I'm riding. I'm. I'm riding with her. Can he pick somebody else up? Can he, can he put her back? And and can we get another hitchhiker? Like everything about the movie is is really aggressive, and that's where I think not just the extreme opinions come from, but the extreme need to have an opinion. There are a lot of controversial movies, movies of the moment, movies where people are like, "This is a breakthrough that no one remembers." no one really cares about, or you have to, you have to kind of dredge it up or have it dredged up for you before you remember you used to go to the mattresses for or against this movie. Yeah. I mean, people forget, right. That basic instinct was what three years earlier and that was hugely divisive wow. then. And now is just sort of thought of as, Oh yeah, that one. It's well, that's one of my favorite movies. I'm really, yeah. It's like Sharon Stone, basic instinct. And I was going to say too, sorry to cut you off, Adam, but no, just no. like, Goodly, it's so funny what you say about that first scene with Elizabeth Berkeley, because like me, like as some shitty 17-year-old who's watching with a shot glass, I'm like, yes, this is the character in both through this movie. This like <laughs> this hot psycho is the person that I identify with. Oh, and oh, I, oh. the basic instinct and so many of the other Beethoven movies, um, like I love I, mean, I meant the royal we. I mean, I had to be talk, <laughs> I had to be talked out of naming our daughter Nomi by my wife. Like I'm with her too. I loved her when I was 14 because I just thought she was amazing. Yeah. But yeah, it. I mean, what you're saying is is is, <laughs> but Basic Instinct. Like I, I love Basic Instinct too. But the fact that Basic Instinct made 400 million dollars three years earlier is partially why what happened to Showgirls happened. Yeah. 
at the end of Basic Instinct, you have someone literally get away with murder. And people a are bunch like, of murders. A bunch of murders. People are like, that's not going to happen again. These guys are not getting away with that. Yeah. No, I, to, I, I remember the moralistic pushback at the time and the, yeah. Yeah, and the and pearl Haley, clutching. And to Haley's point about kicking the ball, it's like, well, when someone keeps kicking your ball away, you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to kick your ball away. All of them. Really far away. You know, like those two guys, people fucking hated them. I still think I hate Esther House, but that's just more of a personal <laughs> thing. I mean, they, they just made basic instinct. Like those guys were not going to get the benefit of the doubt. Sure. But I mean, it was, I think also part of it was the way MGM handled it. The, um, the NC 17 rating and the way they didn't allow it to be screened uh, for the press. That's the thing you do traditionally, you know, unless you're Hitchcock and psycho, that's the thing you do when you don't want reviews. That's the thing you do when you have something you're not sure about. And I'm sure MGM wasn't sure about it because of the NC 17 rating and their, and their own corporate nervousness. But it stigmatized the film in a way as well before it got to people so that there was, even if the, the collective critical population wasn't out for blood, I think there was sort of a whiff of, um, if not manufactured controversy, then desperation around the release of the film, which probably worked against the uh, audiences as well because people went in hoping it was going to be a great yeah. fun ride and they got this glossy nasty thing that that doesn't really want to be quantified in that way well but then it worked immediately back in its favor because in the mid 90s with home video right yeah. there was also the blockbuster controversy but the second people could be like i don't need to be seen in public watching this movie they're like let's watch this movie right and at, the, and at that point you know your four dollar rental fee even if it's not your nine dollar theatrical fee like the movie became profitable very quickly Oh yeah, VHS tapes were like 150 bucks. People forget yeah. how how much money you could make on a on a home yeah. video release at the time. Which I think also opened it up again. That idea of home video and rep screening opened it up to some of the people who either were scared off by the theatrical release or just didn't trust the idea of a studio movie to be any fun. Mm. Like when you read people talking about going to those early midnight screenings in 1996, like yeah, we stayed away, but now we can't ever stay away again. You know, like it, it, it just had to find the right, the right people. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's so important to consider, Norm, as you're saying, all the conditions that led to the release of the movie and the way that influenced lots of different types of responses. Um, but then I do always go back to the fact that watching the movie is something that I enjoy, but I consider extremely unpleasant, not just for the violence, not just for the extremely fraught, thinking and writing and so, so much, so much is weird. Um, but you know what I love about Basic Instinct, this is now a Basic Instinct podcast. I'm yeah. sorry. There, there's room for both. <laughs> it's a big 10. Yeah. What I love about that movie is that there's a character who's a genius, right? Like Sharon Stone is an evil genius who is smarter than every other person she comes across. And she looks really good while she does it. Um, and Showgirls, like, I don't say this to be, like condescending or anything, but I do think the flaw in the screenplay, if there is one, if, big if, um, is that everybody like comes across as though they're stupid or as though Paul Verhoeven considers them to be stupid. There's no like, like evil mastermind. Um, like even as Adam's written, Nomi is on this sort of like every man's journey that like things just kind of come her way and she rolls with it. Um, there's not that sense of real pleasure you get in watching somebody get away with something. And then everybody she encounters with the exception of, you know, her beautiful friend who we just like would do anything to protect um, is like not at, at like best they're, you know, not evil, but most of them are pretty bad and just out for themselves. And that's like, yeah, maybe that's what you mean too, Adam, about like Elizabeth Berkeley's performance where at a certain point you're like, okay, so who, whose side am I on? Who am I relating to? You know, like in All About Eve, like lots of people in that are flawed, but there's always somebody that has like, like a warmth to them that even if you don't like them, you understand what compels you towards them. The film is like a, the film is like a pre-literate All About Eve. <laughs> Right. Well, I, my contention has always been that it's all about Eve, but the writer is just like writing about Los Angeles rather than Las Vegas or New York in that case. And cocaine makes you paranoid. Yeah, and that's what you get. <laughs> but I mean, to Haley's point about Basic Instinct, like I, I think Basic Instinct succeeds because she's the. I mean, the ostensible point of identification in Basic Instinct is the movie cop. 
right? And that's right. who we see the movie through. But Verhoeven and Esterhaz clearly prefer her because she's smart and he's stupid. And the movie basically is this wonderful riff on male paranoia and vanity where it's like, could you imagine both thinking so much of yourself and your ability to fuck and also thinking so little of yourself, you're like, everybody in the world is a woman who wants to kill me. Which actually turns out to be true. Basically, like the film is the vindication of every misogynist fear, which is why it's so funny. It's a deeply, deeply, deeply sexist movie that also, I think, treats that as a satirical booby trap. And yeah, Showgirls, I mean, Haley's very smart when she says that. It doesn't have a, a smart character in it. There's a certain contempt to it. But I also think it is meant as a different kind of identification, which it's much more of a moral tale than Basic Instinct is. It's a picaresque. It's a it's a it's a moral tale that in the picaresque format, the picaro or picara, if it's a woman, she's not smart. She's not brilliant. She's not exceptional. She's an every person, and you have this journey through society where you learn about society through her. And it's her lack of genius and her lack of an organizing principle that gives her a certain integrity. And at the end of the film, Nomi displays moral intelligence, which is she beats the shit out of a rapist right? Which should not send everyone scrambling to university to be like, I'm going to write a thesis on this. But it, it, it's a form of moral intelligence, right? That punishment is, 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 is catalyzed by the rape sequence, which again, to, because Haley was talking about it earlier, it is a punishing and punitive scene. I know a lot of people who love the movie who don't watch it. It's also what's been hiding in plain sight for the whole movie, which doesn't excuse it or make it enjoyable or reclaimable as camp but i've i certainly don't think it's tacked on it's everything that's latent in the movie kind of coming to the surface and at that point that's verhoeven's provocative side sort of being like well i've spoken misogyny and i've showed it to you systemically and i've showed it to you institutionally and you've kind of been like not salivating for this but like waiting because you also kind of been waiting to see a sex scene of some kind other than the pool sequence and then what ends up happening in the region is just incredibly ugly yeah. And I think the ugliness of the movie can't be contained anymore. And I think there's a control to that as opposed to a prurience, at least for me. I do wonder if it's also the separation of powers within the film, because that actor is styled to look and sound like Joe Esterhaus. It felt to me sure, like, like at the time I was really shocked that they were both on board with that. And then I realized Joe Esterhaus probably has no idea that he, th- that people think he looks like this and that that would be an avatar for him. But it, it felt to me like it's the the moment of meta-commentary from Verhoeven that I was waiting for all along, which is like, no, no, look, look at, look at what this is and where this came from. And that's the thing that makes me surprised, as you're saying, as you're both saying, that every time people talk about it as a midnight movie, it's like, it is so fucking ugly in that scene that... You know, it's like the the joke about a fish called Wanda, where they shot one of the dog's deaths two different ways because originally there was a, a crushed dog and there were or, in blood and internal organs. And Cleese said in test screenings that it killed the film, and then they had to reshoot it with no blood and no organs, just like a little flattened dog. And people could laugh at that because it was just distant enough from reality that it was still farce and funny. And that the rape scene in in Showgirls works the same way to me. It just absolutely it's a statement of principle, but it also just sucks the, the pleasure out, whatever potential pleasure there was in laughing at this film is just gone. And so if, you know, James Cameron's always argued that the last 20 minutes of a movie, the only thing that anybody cares about. So you can argue that the, that's what they carry out of the theater, the recency effect. You could argue that the vengeance of that, that, that Nomi getting this guy and beating him down is what saves it. But it's, it felt to me like the moment where Verhoeven says, no, this is the movie I've been making all along. It's the uh, Man Bites Dog. That's the other film that I've been thinking of when the camera is literally turned on the audience uh, and we're all implicated in this, this fun ride we've been sharing. And it felt like Verhoeven was doing that too. And that also went past people at the time um, and has taken a while. Maybe it's still being uh, reclaimed by the audience because it's something that you have to wrestle with if you watch the movie. Well, I am I am thinking about it, and I want to make sure that this whole conversation isn't just about that scene, even though I know I'm the person that brought it up, because I do think it's important to talk about it. Yeah. Oh, I would have if you hadn't. It was coming. 
but like, you know, it's just one of, it's one of those scenes that like the film itself, it serves as the example for what we're talking about when we talk about the response to the movie. Um, and there's a part of me that I feel like as I've made a really deliberate effort to not just watch the movies that inspire these responses, but watch the films that like that influence them in turn um, is just how often there is a really um, kind of, you know, let's say like challenging on one spectrum and grotesque on the other psychosexual element. And of course that goes back to everybody's favorite filmmakers. You know, I'm not going to say that all filmmakers are perverts or like all people who enjoy films are perverts, but it definitely helps. Um, and I think like there's something about Showgirls to Adam's point that refuses to let a lot of that be subtext in a way that the other films that are more, um, you know, considered classically good do. And so that's not, and again, I'm, I'm never going to say Showgirls is good or Showgirls is bad. I'm going to say whether I enjoy it or not. Um, but that's a quality that I, once again, I do not like watching it, but I respect it as a filmmaking principle. And I do feel a sense that as a critic, it's not my job to say, oh, I wish that wasn't there, or I wish that was different, but to think very deeply about what the intentions were behind it. All of, like, as you say, like if there was anything petty about the director involved, or if there was something deeper and more philosophical going on, um, you know, that is the writing and the thinking that I respond to the most in the film. What, like, what when it accepts what's being presented to us in good faith and responds in kind, even if maybe Verhoeven has proven himself to be somebody who has like a mean streak, um, responding with, you know, the full force of your attention is what I think a critic should do in those situations more so than the films that we've talked about are just like normal or average or don't really, don't really push you that far. I mean, when Haley was referring to the perversion inherent in watching movies, I mean, one of Verhoeven's heroes is Hitchcock, yep. who was not um, shy, but there was a certain production context that meant a lot of his movies were more coded, which is why, to me, the Hitchcock movie that I don't necessarily think of compared to Showgirls, but it's when Haley was talking, it came to mind, is Frenzy, where by the early 70s, censorship or representation had sort of gotten to a point where Hitchcock could do it in color and show like sex murders without, you know, like in Dial M for, in, in, in Strangers on a Train when she gets strangled at the amusement park, that's a brilliantly done scene artistically and deeply sexist, sexually motivated killing by a gay man, but it's all implied. Right. And by the time of Frenzy, you can have a woman strangled on screen with her tongue sticking out and you see like Hitchcock to some extent is is doing what he could have or would have done before. Like the shower scene is the fulcrum in that, where it goes further in terms of violence, but it's still black and white. And I think that what Verhoeven and Esterhaz were trying to do, consciously or not, is take all of the sexuality that the backstage melodramas had and repressed, right? When you watch 42nd Street or Gold Diggers of 1932, they're not innocent movies. They're drenched in innuendo and sexual implication and adultery and, you know, fornication all over the place. But they couldn't be shown because of the sensorial climate. So Verhoeven's basically saying, well, now it's 1995. Things that had to be hidden can now literally hang out. Still, what is underneath all of this? And for him and for them, what's underneath all of this is a prurience and a luridness and an exploitation. I've always thought the movie's title is a double entendre. It's not a particularly sophisticated one, the same way that Nomi is not really a particularly sophisticated uh, dual name. But Showgirls is also Showgirls. Right. And they are getting away with something while also, I think, commenting on that practice, which is also their own practice. And I would not be so... Uh, want want to be thoughtful or semi-thoughtful about it, if not, as Norm brought up off the top, that every time Paul Verhoeven did this with violence or with aspects of Dutch society, everyone was like, oh, he's so smart. As if, like, one time he just had, like, a creative aneurysm, you know? As if the one time it's like, well, I guess he's just an idiot, except for the other 95% of the time that he makes movies. It's just not a satisfying solution. And in a weird way, reality's caught up to him, you know? I saw a good tweet the other day, which was, like, watching Robocop in 1987, this is too much... 97, way too much, to, you know, 2007, pretty good, 2020, we're the fucking documentary, yeah. you know? No, I was going to make a joke earlier when you were talking about Michael Douglas and 
face it instinct. Like yeah. Paul, Paul Verhoeven was on the abolished police train like, <laughs> well before oh, many yeah. white artists and filmmakers. Yeah. I mean, lots of them have been forever. But it is, you know, it's interesting too. To there's been a lot of really fascinating conversations amongst critics and artists about the role of fetishizing cops or authority figures um, in films. And I do like knowing the films that Paul Verhoeven made before Showgirls and since Showgirls does give me a sense of a political center that I identify with. And again, a filmmaker doesn't have politics, doesn't have to have politics that I agree with or think are good, but it helps. Um, but it, it did like, it made me trust, as you say, that there was something behind it, that this was not just a simple glossy, let's make, you know, like let's show a bunch of naked girls Let's um, show cops that they're most brutal as a way to celebrate that violence. Um, there's a very thin line with satire, I think, especially nowadays, where I'm not always sure what it can or does accomplish. But it's one of those things where, to me, it's the fact that it does away with subtlety. You know, nothing is left unsaid. Nothing's left assumed. As you say, it, like, it gets to a certain point and it finds an audience who can look at Robocop and say that's a documentary because it's not really that far removed from how it feels. It's always fascinated me that um, that Verhoeven, you know, like Robocop is an answer to Reagan and progress and Starship Troopers is the call forward to Trump somehow. Like he's managed to do both at once and elasticize this. And Showgirls fits right in there somewhere because it's, I mean, it's ultimately like, it, I was going to say like all about you, but like almost every American film about show business, it's about capitalism and it's about the consumption of the female body uh, and all the other fun stuff. But it's just that he doesn't even pretend that it isn't for a second. There, there are no metaphors in Showgirls that doesn't have any time for them. It just barrels right through. I mean, here's something to ask to 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 ask you guys, which is sort of, uh, is it possible? Because the movie that Jeff made that Haley and I are here for, right? You know, you don't know me, which we had so much fun hanging out during Tribeca for that. Remember film festivals with people around? Remember that? I don't remember people. Here we go. Um, you know, can a movie get reclaimed to the point where it's <laughs> where the where, where the value it held as a kind of dissenting object gets lost? Right. This is the thing that I wonder with, with this documentary is if some people see it as a victory lap around territory that's kind of been claimed, or if the argument kind of still needs to be made. I mean, I think there's something to be said, and maybe Haley has thoughts on this too about just re reclamation culture meaning something different when it actually takes 10 or 15 years, because now we have backlash to backlash to backlash within a weekend of a cultural object coming out. Right. Sure. Like the Fiona Apple record, which is sort of one of the big artistic things to come out during quarantine and also came out in a moment where people were still paying more attention to popular culture as opposed to the political culture that has now subsumed that. There were pieces all about that, like, this is the best album ever, and then is it the best album ever? And then yes, it is. And is it? You're listening to it wrong, right? Like, it's a different media scape. And I think that idea of a movie kind of being panned and then coming back can't happen the same way anymore because it happens more often. It happens as a function of, of online film culture. Something can really be abject in a way that I think will give it the value of being uh, redeemed. I don't think that's ever going to happen again. I don't know that the room is ever going to come around as a secret masterpiece. I think that's the that's the, yeah, the speed. That's the good Apatow movie about it. I mean, it's not the <laughs> thing that's good, but it's. But that's it. They're still laughing at it at the uh, at the accomplishment. So uh, that's what I mean. I think that's the last time it's going to happen that way. That it's embrace because it's you know, like I think what we now consider so bad it's good that sort of reclamation I think that peaked because now when people try it they're trying to create a cult film and that never works uh showgirls is something else though showgirls has yeah clawed its way to respectability I think over uh over the decades well I mean that's definitely true but I do wonder about, you know, defining it as having clawed its way back to respectability. Um, I was thinking when Adam was talking about when we were at Tribeca, which was so fun, remember movie theaters. Um, but that was also right before the Met opened one of their last 
for a long time, Costume Institute Galas, which was on camp. It was on oh, yeah. camp. Yeah. And I remember we talked about that a little bit where it's like, what does it mean when the Met is putting on an exhibition and asking some of the world's wealthiest, most famous, most powerful people to adopt camp as an aesthetic deliberately? Right. Um, and there is a sense that, you know, as Adam was saying, that everything has the potential to be reclaimed or to be endlessly dissected. And absolutely, the Internet has sped that up. At the same time, um, Paul Verhoeven in particular and Showgirls in particular has had a lot of help from the very establishment that tried to destroy the film the first time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a coincidence that Adam went for Fiona Apple, who is, you know, like, I remember when when the album came out, a friend and I were having a very intense conversation about some of the critical responses to the critical responses, you know, because there were a lot of essays that were like, she's perfect, don't change a thing, everything about this, 10 out of 10. And then other people being like, okay, she's just a fallible human being, like, let's relax. And it was a friend who's another film critic who I respect very much. And we were saying that we really think there are some moments in criticism that require us to kind of throw up our hands um, and to be like, you know what, like, this is exactly what this artist wanted to make. And I actually don't think I have anything to add. In the same way you can't manufacture a cult classic, you really can't manufacture a genuine um, critical response that's going to override a purely emotional one. And that's something I respect very much. Um, I don't want to be too pretentious, but you know, there's an essay by Elizabeth Hardwick about Virginia Woolf that I go back to all the time, where she says, like, what, what can anybody say about the waves except that when you're reading it, you're happy. And I do, I think about that all the time when I'm writing about a film. And that's not how I feel about Showgirls. I'm not happy when I watch Showgirls. I'm not happy when I'm watching a Verhoeven movie. So I have a lot to write about. Um, but I recognize that in doing that, and even participating in this conversation, which I feel so lucky to get to do, I am strengthening this, you know, really entrenched idea of sorry, again, to take it here, but like the male genius or the director or the screenwriter as the, you know, ultimate creative vision of a film um, and really kind of sidelined all of the compromises and collaborations that a film requires in order to even get to an audience, one of which is the relationship it develops with an audience. Um, So that is why, like, I don't want to rate responses because I love all of the writers who write about showgirls, but it is also just like, you know, being out at like at bars or at parties or at other places where people love movies and hearing people talk about their first experience of seeing the movie that makes me want to return to it. Right. Just like, yeah, like I, I do, I agree with what both of you are saying, but I want to call attention how um, there are certain, there are certain structures in place that Paul Verhoeven still benefits from, obviously. Um yeah, and that like he's not—he's not—he's an underdog in his sphere, but he's still, you know, he's—he's he's okay. Well, and the flip side to your point, which I try to make in the book, and in interviews, I have made it to him, both in person <laughs> on the phone, is you know, to some extent, his career suffered the least, right? And he would say, "Well, no, because I went from making hundred million dollar movies in Hollywood to working in Europe, to which you might say." Worst things have happened to people. Yeah, and it you took know? about 10 years for that to happen because and, he and, still made Starship yeah. Troopers and Hollow and, Man. And, yeah, yeah. And he's a master opportunist and an egomaniac. I say this with deep affection for him, both personally and as a critic. But, you know, compared to some of the other people involved in the film, particularly Elizabeth Berkeley, he kind of got off easy because, to Haley's point, he also has the status in film industrial terms as the genius auteur to kind of withstand this and withstand it long enough for history to reverse and come out the other side. He finds the fact that people like showgirls now very funny. And, you know, he doesn't mean he doesn't think he made a good movie, but you know, he's not stupid. He knows that there are things in that film that did not go the way he wanted. And he now gets the benefit of being called, you know, the maker of a misunderstood classic. So to Haley's point, I think a lot of that heavy lifting, not just towards respectability, but towards what's in the movie, was done by audiences, both individual people and communities who sort of elevated the film. And the great flaw with my book, I think, is I didn't do enough 
and I did research and I talked to people, but didn't do enough to talk about just how absolutely crucial that first year or two of midnight drag club screenings was to sort of lighting a fire under the idea that you can still play with this text. And that's what people like to do with showgirls is they like to play inside of it. You know, that's in Jeff's movie with April Kidwell, who we met, who's a really sweet person. And her idea that showgirls is like a vessel for mastering her own trauma, that's very particular to her. Because I know some people who've watched the movie and they're like, I don't understand that at all. But for her, it's obviously like a huge organizing principle in her life, not just her performative life, but her personal life into her performative life. I like that Jeff includes that because it's not just critics sitting around talking about the movie in a vacuum. It's like, People who, have, in, who people who have either projected onto the movie or the movie has projected onto them. And as critics, I think sometimes we leave that stuff behind because we're interested in objectivity or interested in sounding authoritative, which is why I love what Haley was saying about the Virginia Woolf passage. I think it takes a better critic to read and understand that passage and agree with it than to say, well, actually, here's why The Waves is interesting. <laughs> Takes a lot of can you explain Virginia Woolf to everybody. Yeah, it um, takes a lot of restraint to not be that person. Yeah, whether it's the waves or showgirls. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think that's. No, I'm sure Virginia would love that. Yeah, I <laughs> would appreciate it very much. Yeah. Kill herself again. Sorry. <laughs> I uh, I did want to get back to one thing that that you both said, uh, which is that. Verhoeven has benefited from from the goodwill involved in this, and and all of that machinery was turned on Berkeley negatively when the film came yep. out. And we haven't really discussed her performance or or what she does in the film that is the embodiment of the point of the movie. I think you don't do that, and and maybe part of that is a general discomfort about digging too deeply into a performance, which is so clearly what has been required of her. It's the thing she was asked to do. It just looks and scans uh, unnaturally to, to the trained eye. I mean, um, it's, it's easy to shit on the performance. I don't think it's totally fair. Um, she I, looks like a Tasmanian devil when she's introduced. Uh, the scene with the hamburger is, is a behavior that I've never seen modeled in other human beings that are older than five. And I'm doing it right now, and I know it. But the, the pleasure of taking that performance apart, I think, plays a great deal into the attacks on the movie in the first two years anyway, until people started to go see it with a more, um, more open I, mind. I, I, I love her more than anybody outside of my immediate family <laughs> at, at this point. I, and it's a very thin line between character and actress, because as Chan Noriega wrote, she wrote that the film is essentially an allegory of itself, right? That what... Nomi goes through is a more triumphant version of what Berkeley actually went through. And that sure. that gap is actually really sad, right? That at the end of Showgirls, the implication is that Nomi's going to go to Hollywood and do it all again and win. And, you know, Elizabeth Berkeley was essentially exiled from her own career mm -hmm. and not because she gave a great performance that people misunderstood, but as you say, she had a very compromised performance. She did what the director asked of her. She bought into the same machinery that Showgirls is trying in a bit of an incoherent way to argue was bad. And ended up, you know, being very embarrassed. But, and this is, a, I mean, Haley's probably sick of hearing me say this. I hope not, but I'll just say it once and you guys can tell me what you think of this. If she doesn't act the way that she does, I think the movie's worth is considerably less no matter how brilliantly shot and edited and scored and Verhoeven-esque it is. Because it is those things objectively, I think. That's my version of Showgirls being the waves. Okay, the, you know, or, or something else. I just put my hands up when I look at that film on a 35 millimeter print on a big screen. I'm like, anyone who thinks this movie is not well made is dumb. Okay, Red Desert is well made and uh, Chaplin movies are well made and this is well made. There's different kinds of well made. This is obviously a well made movie. He's a great technical filmmaker. If she's played by an actress giving a better performance or a less ostentatiously bad performance or, or troubled performance, I think the movie's power is diminished and that's why we are obsessed with this movie. Every other aspect of it, I think you can reconcile in a way with that question of good and bad. But to Haley's point, if Showgirls is neither good nor bad, which is what I sort of think about it too, it transcends those categories, it's her. And in that way, it's one of the greatest performances I've ever seen, ever. Uh, it, 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 there, there is nothing like it because it makes the movie what it is. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, it's how I feel. 
No, absolutely. It, I, I would agree that that performance in Elizabeth Berkeley specifically and the contest that she came out of, you know, coming off Saved by the Bell and having that be the way so many people who participated in reclaiming the movie knew her. Um, yeah, it makes all the difference. It's one of the elements, I think you're exactly right, it's one of the elements of the film that are so distinct and indelible and have made it something that people want to keep returning to as opposed to just, you know, a very well-made, very well-financed blockbuster NC-17 film. Um, It was funny, watching the documentary at Tribeca, I remember it was one of those things where I had read all of those reviews when I was researching the essay about your book but seeing them and like hearing them narrated over and over again, it did give me the sense of like, I don't, I don't want to condescend to her, pity her or anything because I think she's, you know, proven herself to be a very strong person who has a good sense of humor. Um, but it was so sad that, that people thought they could talk about an artist and a worker and a person the way they did. She, I mean, she, she, she basically became obsessed herself with playing this part. She thought that in the context of mid-90s Hollywood, not because of any, like, uh, social merit that the movie was going to have. Like, she was ambitious. Yeah. And yeah. so was everybody else. You know, she's a professionalized actor who chased a role and wanted it and was, you know, told that this is the guy who directed Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct, which is a double-edged comment if you sure. buy what, if you believe Sharon Stone's claims about lack of consent on Basic Instinct in terms of the underwear scene, right? Like, that was, that was in the public discourse then. And she was younger than Sharon Stone. Sharon Stone's always said that being in her early 30s and having been around the block a couple of times protected her a little bit on the set of, of Basic Instinct. You know, her, her, you know, Berkeley didn't have any of that. And so she did, I think, what she did on Saved by the Bell. She just threw herself into it. It's just in the context of Saved by the Bell, it's an innocuous TV show. There's five other people to take the brunt. And in Showgirls, yeah, it's all kind of all on her. Yeah. You know? And uh, it's moving. To me. Yeah, I mean, she, if nothing else, she trusted the people behind the camera and yeah. they didn't protect her. Or they got exactly what they wanted and they didn't protect her. I think actually neither of those things. They didn't okay. protect her and he didn't get quite what he wanted. And yet, <laughs> paradoxically, this is the cruel part. This is the like uh, lepidopterist looking at things under glass part of being a critic that I'm sometimes not proud of, but it's what I am is like the movie is amazing because of that. You know, I feel like I just keep citing my brilliant friends, but they're so much smarter than me. But I do remember this one conversation with one of my friends who has always asked the best questions. And she sort of casually turns to a group of us and was like, so what was the first piece of art you loved that you knew hated you? (laughs) (laughs) Because that's like, that's an experience that's very specific to being a certain type of person in this world. Um, And I, it was one of those things where until she had said it like that, I didn't realize that I had an answer. Um, And I didn't realize that that had become the way I shaped my understanding of what a movie should be or what was expected of me as the audience of a movie. Um, And in Showgirls and Elizabeth Berkley's performance, I really see that. And like, I wanna be clear, I believe Sharon Stone completely. And I have no doubt that Paul Verhoeven, and like, there's, there's nothing funny about this, that he was probably an extremely abusive and exploitative person to work with, which is unacceptable. And one of the myths we tell ourselves about male geniuses, you know, whatever it takes to get the shot counts. And that's just not true. We've seen that like the best directors are the ones who create the most trusting environments. Um, But yeah, for Elizabeth Berkley, I think that's the part that makes me sad um, because I think about her on that set working with somebody, again, I don't know him. I've never met him. I, I don't want to say I can see inside, inside his heart. Um, but like we say, the film is about misogyny. And we know that the conditions of making that film were misogynistic and the reception of it was as well. This is a movie that hates the people it's about and kind of hates a lot of the people who made it and maybe hates the people who purport to like it, you know, uncritically or with a lot of um, enthusiasm or joy. There's a, like, as we've talked about, there's that sense of contempt um, that is, I think, why also it 
become such a source of joy. For me, that's my version of trying to kick the ball over the fence, right? It's like, oh, you really don't want me to like this movie. So I'm going to do everything in my power to make it mine and like to take it away from you in some way. But I think that circling back to the first part of what we talked about, and it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, everything that Haley's saying as usual is so rich and not just kind of personal, but it's collective in terms of our responsibilities as viewers to think about how things are made and think about intention and all that. Film critics don't do that. They should, right? But the reviews of Showgirls were like, this is a bad story. The acting's pretty bad. Of all the movies that came out this week, I give it one star, right? Like that's the critical format and template that I think the internet and different um, hybriding, hybridizing of film criticism with cultural theory and personal writing has blown up. It's not that it didn't exist before. James Baldwin wrote film criticism or Susan Sontag wrote film criticism before making her own movies on top of which a lot of critics, whether it's, you know, a Pauline Kael or a Stanley Kaufman, and they always had the space and the word count to kind of do that. But that was always the exception to the rule. Yeah, the model why, in place didn't really allow for yeah, it in daily journalism. Which is why, and this this is not meant as a rerouting of this conversation towards dunking on Pauline Kael, because I respond <laughs> that's not it. But it's like, you'd be interested to see what 10 or 15 other writers of the period could do if they'd had 1,200 words for every movie instead of 200. Sure. You know, and, and, and newspaper critics couldn't do that. So I think that when you have movies that, as we said at the beginning, are kind of anodyne, where you, you don't have, they don't oblige you to think much, you know, saying this is two stars and I like Robert De Niro in it is fine. <laughs> I think that when you have something like this that, you know, I mean, you could go crazy talking about it. It does not benefit in terms of its reception from the kind of writing that, in, that it encountered. But I also think that it's that dismissal that makes it interesting to talk about because we are always interested by disasters. And we are always interested in correcting a boring, square, liberal consensus, which is a part of this, too. And that's why I think Berkeley's performance was so crucial. I've done the thought experiment. Like, it's an imperfect one, but, like, what if Alicia Silverstone had been in that movie? Because Clueless, one of the other movies from 1995 that I love almost as much as I love Showgirls, and in many ways a better film. I mean, Amy Hecker... Perfect movie. (laughs) It's a great movie, and it's an Austin adaptation and all that. Yeah. I mean, Every should... time I see an Emma adaptation, my opinion of Clueless gets higher than I thought it would ever <laughs> You know, one thing you'd probably agree about Clueless, all of us, is that within the part as written, Alicia Silverstone gives an expert comic performance. She was only ever that good again for me in Vamps, which I love. I think she's really good in Clueless. Let's say in Showgirls she had somehow given an expert comic performance where she had actually channeled... Anne Baxter from All About Eve somehow. And she had worked within the contours of Verhoeven's direction and given a more respectable performance. Or let's say she hadn't let herself be pushed around as much. I don't know. I mean, I'm projecting. Let's say it was Drew Barrymore, someone else. We're not talking about the movie in that case. I think we still talk about RoboCop or Starship Troopers or L if they're made the way that they end up being made. Because I think he's a great filmmaker. I think he's one of the greatest filmmakers. But I don't think this movie gets talked about without her acting. But the way that most film critics review movies, what the format demands is there's not time for that. You can't go on and on and on and on and on. You've got to sort of be like, what's my gut impulse on this writing on deadline on a Wednesday night? And most people's gut impulse was not necessarily wrong to be like, this seems pretty bad. But this is also going back to your earlier point about like the the timing of the discourse and backlashes and the subsequent backlashes to the first backlash. Um, not to make everything about the collapse of media, but the collapse of media. Oh, is everything awesome. is about the collapse of media. Oh, everything is. And so it's like, it's the worst thing. We're all struggling and suffering in these terrible workplace environments where it never had to be like this. At the same time, because there is no space and there is no, there are no jobs, um, the fact that it's moved to these more social spaces, as we were saying before, has opened it up to way more conversations. Like it's kind of replicating the experience of being in academia and having like you know the time and space to really write an entire thesis about the politics of the movie. Um, but like you know, on Twitter, you only get so many characters, but nobody can stop you from making a thread, even if everybody's streaming it you not to do it like that's where you can find people who want to have these conversations and who want to contribute and keep talking about it where a newspaper and even you know a website that offers comments it really it's a monologue um and that's not what this movie needs 
No, and that's a really nice. It it, it kind of requires kind of requires dialogue. Right? Well, it's the that's what a midnight movie is, right? Call and response. Yeah, call call, yeah. call and response. Yeah, did we did we did we, did we cover it for you? I think we <laughs> I think we fixed showgirls, guys. I think we did. Well, it. You know, I mean, we didn't we didn't like go around and do favorite lines and stuff, but that's all been kind of done. And I should say, I don't know if you can edit this into the thing, but you know, Jeffrey's movie has itself had a pretty interesting response if you've read the reviews because some people are using it to delitigate showgirls. A couple people like the Wall Street Journal were like, or or Chris Orr of the Atlantic was like, actually the movie's terrible. You know, showgirls just terrible. And so what is the point of something like this? And people haven't had the opportunity to bring that up because there needs to always be a prompt, you know? (laughs) Yeah. When my when my book came out, I think the enterprising writers who wrote on it, none of whom wrote about it as well as Haley did, for which I am eternally grateful, as she knows, uh, they were all like, this is a good chance to talk about showgirls being good, because that's the spirit of this book, and let's take this opportunity. No, I did My book wasn't ever panned as a, as a book, but no one also used it as an excuse to pan showgirls. I think that this movie is now sort of a chance for people who kind of want to push back a little bit against the inevitable. Right. I wonder, and maybe it's simply the impulse to, yeah, to delitigate, to delegitimize. I don't even know what the term is to re reclaim, to declaim a film. I guess that's a word to be re re delegitimize showgirls. Yeah. But to be, but the, but isn't that it, right? If the whole point of the film is that it's not made for the people who embraced it, then people who are saying now, what's the point of a documentary about it? the documentary is not made for them either. It's, it's literally a negative echo chamber. Is that a thing? A vacuum? It's a vacuum, isn't it? Well, something that I do really admire about the documentary and about Jeffrey's way of putting it together um, is that again, when we watched, we got to watch it in a movie theater during Tribeca, it really does very honestly mimic the experience of watching showgirls. It like, really gives you that kind of emotional arc of being like, oh my God, this is so fun. Oh wait, no, this is so bad. Um, And it brings in so many different voices, not literally in conversation with each other, but definitely adding to each other um, and overlapping with each other in a way that I think, yeah, really honors what we're talking about, that social aspect of this movie. Um, And like you say, like the question I always ask before I'm about to say anything about a movie is who is this for? Because it's not always for me. Jeffrey's movie, I do think, is for us. It's for people who want to talk endlessly about the same movie over and over again. Whether or not that showgirl is a sign of a quality you have to have in yourself before you can get into the specific film. Um, And so, yeah, Adam, to your point about people, you know, kind of taking it as maybe a jumping off point to being like, but I want to talk about the movie itself. It's just like, well, you you might be a different type of fan or you might be a different type of audience or a different type of critic. Um, this is, yeah, like Norm, like you were saying about the midnight movie crowd, um, I think will really, I don't know, experience something that replicates that sense of watching a movie for the first time and being overwhelmed with too many thoughts. But, but you know, in a way, obsessive texts about texts that generate obsession, they take on the tenor of their subject. Because one thing about Room 237, which obviously this movie is in debt to, and Jeffrey's a big fan of, a lot of the commentary in Room 237 about The Shining, it's not ownership. It's more kind of like, this is what the movie's really about. It's as clinical and cold and analytical as people think Kubrick is. People don't watch Room 237 and feel like, uh, the, in Room 237, they're not like The Shining is personal to me. I think that's the thing about Jeffrey's movie is by the end, you sort of feel, especially through April, people who are reacting to the part of the film that just, you know, do you see yourself in it or do you see your experiences in it? Do you see your trauma in it? Do you see your bad thoughts or bad impulses in it? Like that's the kind of cult ownership and fandom I think Showgirls has. I know that when I showed the movie in Key West, which is a 24 hour party town where it's happy hour all the time, there's no buildings above three stories tall. And there was like a drag wedding in the balcony when I showed it with Verhoeven on stage, people's questions or their comments, because they all wanted to tell Verhoeven what they thought of it. were just sort of all talking about this idea of, like from the minute I saw it, you know, it 
I, I felt like I got it or I, I felt like it got me. And that, again, we're not going to go back into it. That's really complex when you have the ugly aspects of the movie. But it's, like, very passionate, I think. And, um, you know, I think Nomi's made for those people. I think for people who are on the outside of that, the movie may not be all that convincing because it's really not that rigorous, you know? The closest it comes to rigor is like me, and I'm not that rigorous. You know, me and Haley and I are like the critical voices, and a lot of the other stuff is very, very subjective, personal fan kind of stuff. So it's a it's an interesting function of the movie, I think. I don't know how many people it would convince who aren't already half convinced. Is my point? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But if you're watching the movie, you presumably already. That's what I mean, and that's where it, its audience has found it already, and it's. To some extent, you know, I think it's going to do really well and be around for a long time, Jeffrey's movie. The New York Times didn't like it the same way it didn't like Showgirls, so there's a nice <laughs> mirror. I was going to say, that's just, that's just a badge of honor at this point. Yeah, no, it's okay. My thanks to Adam and Haley, who both offer very thoughtful commentary on Showgirls in You Don't Know Me, which is currently available to rent and buy on Apple TV and Google Play. Thanks also to Ali Lemaire Shedden. She knows what she did, and I'm sorry it took so long to release this episode. There were some issues with the file that I had to fix. You can find Haley on Twitter at Haley Melodek, all one word. And you can find Adam at Bro From Another, also all one word. And you can find Showgirls on Blu-ray and DVD from MGM Home Entertainment. The streaming options are a little trickier right now. It's currently available for rent and purchase at Cineplex in Canada and streaming at Hollywood Suite. In the U.S., it's streaming on MaxGo and DirecTV and available for rent and purchase on Fandango Now. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days. Uh, the current episode of Now What finds me talking to Rodney Asher about his new film, A Glitch in the Matrix, simulation theory, and a bunch of other reality-questioning stuff. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or this show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on Frequency Podcast Network while you're there. Stay inside, watch movies, wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.